analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Overcast, blustery day here in Kamloops. Uh, great day to get down and uh, cozy up to the radio. Listen to some good talk radio. we got about an hour of that ahead of you. Uh, lots of interesting things to talk about, including some sports news. We'll touch on Canucks and Blazers with John Keane in a little bit. We're going to talk about a crisis, a staffing crisis in the seniors' care industry, and we're going to bookend the show on Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, we're going to talk to the BC Business Council's Greg Davignon at the end of the show, and we begin the show with the president of Peterson Capital, also a former federal conservative leadership candidate, Rick Peterson. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Thank you. Doing well. Good. Good to hear your voice, by the way. I haven't talked to you in a while. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, you're uh, keeping an eye on this thing. I know you created uh, Suits and Boots, uh, a pro-industry yeah. group to uh, counter some of the anti-industry stuff going on out there. We had a uh, second approval from the federal government this week, and I know from uh, listening in on the Ian Anderson uh, press conference yesterday, Trans Mountain, in his words, is chomping at the bit to get going. Uh, in fact, they plan, if everything goes well, to get shovels in the ground in September. Uh, you're joining us, I believe you're in Edmonton this morning, correct? I am, yes. Yeah, so what's the, first off, uh, what's your reaction and, and what's the reaction been playing out in Alberta? Well, thanks, Shane. The, the reaction in Alberta is, is kind of cautious and, and I think Jason Kenney's uh, approach reflects a lot of what we're hearing on the ground is, that's great. Uh, you know, it's too bad we're here in the first place, but let's see what happens. But I, I think even more worrisome, Shane, um, you know, we started, uh, as you mentioned, thank you, Suits and Boots uh, about a year ago. And the suits part of our organization are colleagues of mine in the investment banking business across Canada. And I would I would say, based on the calls and emails I've had since that announcement, Shane, the betting is that there may never be another pipeline built in Canada. Right? Yeah. The, the smart money, uh, I mean, this is all good. We have Trans Mountain going ahead. But in my mind, the next 24 hours uh, and the next 90 days are really key to the future of the resource sector in Canada. The next... 24 hours, you've got the um, C69 and C48 playing out in the Senate. And the next 90 days, uh, you're going to be closer to it than I am, but there's going to be a ramp up of activism and opponents. So we'll see the resolve of the government to enforce the rule of law. And um, in the 90 day lead up to the next federal election, we'll see how strong the federal government is in terms of uh, pushing forward on this. So it's, it's, uh, it's an ugly situation, Shane. It is one where the investment community is basically uh, not at all impressed. And I, again, there is a lot of thoughts that this may be the last pipeline ever built in Canada. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, obviously, we can't tell the future. I wouldn't disagree with that, just based on the sheer hell it takes to to begin construction on this thing. But uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned some of the some of the. I mean, we're going to see more court challenges, Rick. We're going to certainly see protests, probably more centered in the Lower Mainland than anywhere else. So it'll probably be the last stage of the pipeline that'll be the toughest to get done from a from an optical perspective. Anyway, uh, how do you think construction should be handled, and how do you think this thing should be built in light of the fact we've got two approvals? Every court challenge that I'm aware of, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is one out. Is it just time to say, okay, uh, let's just get this thing built regardless? Well, the rule of law, Shane. Right? We have the rule of law in Canada, and and uh, I thought Ian Anderson was he put on a very brave face. They want to get you know get down and get it done. But I, uh, you know, again, uh, being a 30-year resident of the British Columbia before moving here to Alberta two years ago, but I, I think you're going to have protests uh, all over B.C. I mean, look at, uh, was it uh, Sephora Berman talking about warrior up, right? And Jody Wilson-Raybo, who is not at all, you know, uh, necessarily inciting that, but I saw a Facebook post from 
the former uh, Liberal MP in uh, Granville, and she said no. She's saying no to Trans Mountain Pipeline, and she's saying what we need is a new you know, energy paradigm. Well, the reality of it is, Shane, is we've got a big business that has been given government approvals to go ahead. We've had a couple rounds of the courts. If we can't see the federal government being strong enough to allow its own pipeline to be pushed through, if you're the CFO of any major company out there and you're looking at all the different places you can invest your money, Canada's not the place, BC's not the place. Uh, let's let's build on that in a little bit, but I'm just sort of curious. Um, you know, you mentioned Jody Wilson-Raybould, who uh, certainly come out and to some degree after the fact. I mean, her government bought the pipeline and was was to some degree pro pipeline, so it's an interesting turnaround for her. Another guy, uh, David Anderson, who's a former federal politician, uh, came out uh, recently with a claim that there's no business case for this. Uh, what do you make of that? Ian Anderson wouldn't be putting shareholder capital at uh, risk right now if he didn't think it was a business case. Uh, you know, I mean, I think Ian Anderson, is he not from Victoria originally, Shane? Uh, I can't remember off the top, but a former, yeah. former federal environment yeah. minister, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, you know, reasonable people can take positions on either side of this question, but when it comes to investing shareholder capital, which Ian Anderson is doing, he wouldn't be putting money in. I mean, Kendall Morgan backed off. Right? Kinder Morgan backed off. Who is going to put money into Canada right now into a pipeline? Who? If you're looking at a spreadsheet of different places you can put money, and you look at Canada and you look at all the different risk factors there, the uh, C69 coming down tomorrow, I mean, we started at Suits and Boots. We rang the bell last September, Shane, saying this is going to kill capital market investment in the industry. And we, we, you know, we came out with a campaign to kill Bill C69, and we've been proven right. Right. Yeah. We're sitting here today and tomorrow. What's going to happen on Bill C sixty nine? It's been the Senate had recommended two hundred different amendments, and uh, the House is going to come back with maybe a, well, they did come back with ninety of them. And if the amendments that the government ends up pushing through still maintain the litigation risk, the risk of litigation, court litigation, uh, that's the biggest risk out there. And litigation equals delays. Delays equals money. Why would you as an investor, or why would you as the CFO or CEO, why would you say to your shareholders, we're going to put some money in there? It's, it would be it would be irresponsible. And I was lucky enough to testify in front of the Senate C-69 committee, and sitting right beside me was the CEO of Pembina Pipelines. And he told the Senate committee, he said, we're not putting money in Canada. Why, why should anybody else? Huh. Uh, by the way, and uh, maybe sort of as a, as a segue to this, but as sort of an aside, uh, as you and I are talking, I'm just getting breaking news now that uh, the Premier here, John Horgan, has announced an immediate temporary moratorium on new resource development in critical caribou habitat in the South Peace region of this province, uh, where there's some endangered caribou there, which I guess further adds to the complexities facing uh, some resource development. Uh, Rick? Yeah, I know that's going to be interesting. And, and uh, you know, Premier Horgan has a mandate, and he earned it, and he deserved it. And, uh, you know, the Prime Minister earned a mandate, and he earned it, and he deserved it. I, my, my sincere hope is that in the upcoming federal election that the future of the resource sector is indeed a ballot box question, Shane, because we're at a crux here. We're at a crux in these next 90 days that's going to decide whether or not we're a good place to invest capital. And if we don't, if we fail that test, uh, we're going to be in tough. There's people listening to the radio right now, Rick, who say, yeah, we're in crux, we're in crux, we need to move to a, a clean, green energy economy. It's time to do away with fossil fuels, that kind of thing. You know that sentiment exists out there. Uh, what do you think about that? And in, and in fact, uh, I mean, we've heard from Mr. Trudeau, the Prime Minister, 
uh, his plan is to use pipeline revenues to further add uh, or fuel that transition. What, what's your take on that? Two, two points there, Shane. It's not pipeline revenues. Revenues are top line. That's the first line on income statement. It's profits, right? Will there be profits on this, right? Will the government make any money on this? We don't know because it, because of the of the delays that if they let the delays happen, they're not going to make money on it. We all understand and we all get and we all know that our use of energy is in transition. Nobody is doubting that. But what's the timeline, Shane? What's the timeline? Is it 10? Is it 20? Is it 30? Is it 40? Uh, I don't know and I don't think anybody knows. I, quite frankly, uh, I was really impressed with part of what Elizabeth May said the other day when she said, you know what, she said, uh, you know, we have to be relying on Canadian oil until this transition takes place. Her point that I disagree with is she says we can't encourage new development, but her point was well spoken is that, listen, let's be realistic. We all know where we want to go, but nobody knows how long it's going to take. Nobody knows whether this is going to take 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And I'm open to, to having anybody, you know, pin down a number, but Right now, we need energy, and we need clean energy, and we need energy that's come from Canadian sources that follow the rule of law and that are not Saudi or Venezuelan or from anywhere else. So let's get it done. And that's where I stand on that, Shane. It's a very clear economic, political, or capital decision. And the reality from Alberta is you look around and you see all these arguments coming up, but when the rubber hits the road, who's going to fulfill the needs for this country for the next 10, 20, 30 years? It still has to be the energy sector to a large part. There's an interesting development on the Trans Mountain Front that's played out over the last few months, and that is we have uh, several different First Nations groups uh, uh, banding together and, and, and making a pitch to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline. One group uh, I talked to who's locally represented here by Whispering Pines First Nation Chief Mike Laborde, uh, in mm-hmm. fact, was in Ottawa just a few days ago to table an offer. Now, we know from what the Prime Minister announced uh, this week, uh, that they are going to open the pipeline up to some kind of economic cooperation or investment from First Nations communities. Potentially, I've heard from Mike Laborde that there'll be an opportunity for First Nations groups to buy over and above whatever percentage that might look like. Um, your take on that, does that provide some hope for you on, on resource development front, if we can get First Nations on board to that extent? That's great news. Mike Laborde is a very sharp uh, very sharp guy, and uh, 100% support what he can do, and, and if there's anything we can do to encourage that, I would say absolutely. The unfortunate thing is that the majority of First Nations who do support the pipeline are being crowded out, and their voices aren't quite as loud as, as obviously is the case for the protesters. I would come back to that and say that that's probably the squeaky wheel getting the grease, because here in British Columbia, we have First Nations... Uh, across the majority of the pipeline path, with maybe the exception of cold water, and and there's some movement I hear to to address their concerns around a water Mm -hmm. aquifer, but um, the voices you hear in this province are a handful of First Nations groups on the coast. No, they are, Shane, and they they have every right to protest, but but let's let's just, uh, don't worry about what's happened in the past. In the next 90 days, if there is a protest that's mounted, I mean, look at what happened at, do you remember Camp Cloud out in Burnaby? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I covered that for a while. You did, and, and Suits and Boots, we were up there as well, too. And, and, and if you look at what happened at Camp Cloud and Burnaby, there was a hard deadline for the evacuees of the camp to get out of the camp, and they didn't respect it. There, uh, there is a right to protest. There is a right to make your voice heard. But there is a right as well to continue to build a pipeline that has passed every single test that you need. So the rule of law and the ability to allow a private sector company on behalf of the government push through 
That's the test in the next 90 days, Shane, and we're going to see if the federal government passes it. It's a key test for all of Canada. Rick, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time this morning. Really good to hear from you. A pleasure. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. That's Rick Peterson. He's the president of Peterson Capital, almost uh, also a former uh, federal conservative leadership candidate, also a former leadership candidate for the B.C. Conservative Party here in British Columbia. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll jump into the world of sports. John Keane. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. Pleasure to be joined in studio this morning to talk a lot of interesting sporting news from the NL Sports Desk and, of course, the voice of the Kamloops Blazers, John Keane. Good morning, John. Good morning, Shane. I know we are talking sports, but if you ever need a political guest here, we can can talk about a lot of things. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Look at all that beautiful pipeline on the railway across the street here. Anyways. Uh, The Kamloops Blazers making a big... Interesting move. I mean, Sean Cluson, you can tell me a little bit about him. Uh, What I find interesting about this, I mean, we had the major sea change staffing-wise, head coaching-wise, not that long ago, and all of a sudden, here we go again. Serge Lajoie, obviously, not working out in the eyes of of management of the Blazers over there. Yeah, uh, you know, and I I think um, at the end of the season, there definitely was, um, you know, some deficiencies that the team wanted to improve on, and, you know, and there was some thinking that maybe that last run, you know, the run up to the playoffs and getting in might have saved uh, Serge's job, but uh, there was a meeting at the end of the season and uh, a a mutual parting of ways. I'm using air quotes there. (laughs) Uh, And uh, and lo and behold, yes, um, the announcement last week. Sean Cluson, what do you think? I like it. Uh, I've known Sean a while. Uh, He's been out of the Eastern Conference. Uh, he, He brings a wealth of experience. And when he spoke yesterday about teamwork and trust and and getting to know his staff and, and coming together as a staff so they are unified to start in front of the guys that that really just hits all the notes i think of what this team needs uh with a coach uh, and you know he has gm experience too so he knows how to build a roster and and knows what makes up a, a you know valuable parts of the team so i think he really lightens the load on on gm matt barsley as well and I, I assume that's fairly important because my understanding, you know better than I, but my understanding is there's going to be some fairly big roster holes to fill from this year's team, whatever, whoever they ice, compared to who we saw last year because a lot of guys are on their way out. No, you know, not overly too bad. You know, the big loss definitely is is Jermaine Lowen. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is a big one. He's their guy. captain. Yeah, and, and that's a more of a leadership standpoint than anything. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have the the offensive season that maybe he would have hoped f- to have, but uh, they already feel they're great in goal with Dylan Garan. They feel they have six, seven returning defensemen that can fill the void, and you know they welcome Logan Stankoven full time now as a 16 year old here. So I think there's a lot of optimism about the roster. Uh, if they do look to plug some holes, it'll be addition, bringing in you know maybe some some higher end, more experienced talent to you know to bolster up what should be a pretty good roster. If you got head coaching issues, obviously they felt like they've addressed that. Um, what do you think step number two is for the Blazers? If they're looking to fill another hole or address another need, what would that be as far as the second priority? Probably a defenseman, yeah. veteran D-man. Uh, 
power play type defenseman. Um, so the, the only problem is if you bring in one of those veterans, you already have a lot of veteran defensemen. So you might have to look to trade one of those just to balance out your top four. So they have three 19-year-old D-men returning and one 20-year-old defenseman. So you add another veteran in there, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's like, okay, we got we, we have to have some ice time still for some, some of the youth. So I think that would be something they would look at. Uh, speaking of veteran defensemen, Alex Edler resigning with the Vancouver Canucks. So there was some speculation he was potentially on the way out or going to test the free agent market mm-hmm. and sign somewhere else. But uh, coming back home to Vancouver, that has to be good news for the Canucks. I think so. And this is a bit split amongst the fan base because, okay, the Canucks are trying to rebuild. They're trying yeah. to have a whole new era, right? But what does Alex Edler represent? You know, yeah. The old guard, right? <laughs> 13 years, all with the Canucks. You know, you were a big Edler guy. Uh, you know, and then he was a big part of the like team. Like my Scandinavian player. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to be around two more years uh, at $6 million a season. Uh, so, I, you know, I think Jim Benning does good because he doesn't, he doesn't cave to what apparently was a long-term contract demand from the Edler camp. They only get in it two years. Yeah. The dollar figure is probably higher than maybe, you know, $6 million, but at least they're not locking in long-term, so they have to do a buyout maybe in, in year five or six. So. And speaking of that renewal, uh, one of the big first steps to that always is the NHL draft, which starts tomorrow. Uh, Vancouver, I believe, is picking 10th. New Jersey Devils have the first overall pick. Uh, who do you think Vancouver's on the hunt for? Well, see, the Canucks have a ton of options at 10 because, you know, they may have a list and, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, when you get 10 picks deep, a lot can change. Uh, there might be some players available they didn't think was going to be available at that number 10 spot. But, you know, experts are, are pegging the Canucks possibly to take, uh, there's a couple of really good, talented American forwards, a bit undersized, but Matthew Boldy. And Cole Caulfield, especially Cole Caulfield, a really talented offensive forward, yeah. uh, played on that U.S. under-18 development program. Uh, but if they do look to trend toward the defenseman, a D-man's name that's being thrown around, another uh, Scandinavian, uh, Philip Broberg. There you go. I know you can really... <laughs> Wrap your head around a Philip Broberg type guy. <laughs> so, so those those are some of the options. Again, you know, maybe the Canucks make a splash and trade up. Maybe they really like yeah. a top player and get into the top five. Yeah, interesting. Uh, is there is the number one a lock this year? Or I think some so. Flux there or no? Yeah, you know what? I, I thought definitely the the World Championships that Capo Caco had for Finland yeah. would definitely get him into the wait one minute. Maybe he's the number one available pick overall. Jack Hughes? Yeah, it's going to be Jack Hughes by the sounds of yeah. it still, uh, which uh, really, Kako was dominant. He was Finland's best forward at 18 at that tournament. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Uh, but I think they feel that maybe Jack Hughes has that Patrick Kane sort of upside. He's maybe more marketable as a American forward in New Jersey, right? That plays a role too. So it probably will be Jack Hughes when the devil step to the podium tomorrow, but uh, Capo Kako too would be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, final thought, we're out of time, but yeah. just because I think it's really funny. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers, who have had a number of number one yes. picks, yeah. I saw a thing this week and laughed out loud where they, they're thinking about trading down in the draft because uh-huh. I thought, well, I mean, number one picks haven't worked out for you, so why not go the other direction? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, I mean, what, what else do you have left to do in the repertoire, right? Yeah. Well, hopefully Stu McGregor's not listening uh, today in Kamloops. He was on some of those first overall picks there, but uh, yeah, there yeah we we we'll, see, we'll, we'll see what shakes down. This should be fun tomorrow. Any Kamloops Blazers in the, in the draft? Yeah. Quinn Schmeeman, if there is going to be one that's going to be selected, Quinn Schmeeman could be a pick on Saturday uh, in rounds two through seven. Okay, awesome. John, thanks, man. Appreciate it. John Keane, voice of the Blazers. Take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. We'll talk seniors care next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now.
You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone this morning from the BC Care Providers Association, Daniel Fontaine. Good morning, Daniel. How are you? Good morning. Doing very well. Uh, you, uh, on Monday, were in Kelowna, uh, an emergency meeting, as I understand it, and this is kind of mm-hmm. builds on something you and I have talked about on this show before. Uh, you were upset about uh, some roadblocks and bureaucracy that is preventing care aides from coming into this province and just setting up mm-hmm. shop and getting some work done. Uh, you've now gone to the lengths of filing a complaint against the province uh, over what, uh, what I think you're calling unfair labor restrictions. Uh, coming mm-hmm. out of this emergency meeting uh, in Kelowna on Monday, maybe brief me, what's going on here and, and what's happened mm-hmm. since? Sure, well, maybe just to explain uh, uh, for, for your listeners that we do have uh, an agreement in place between, in fact, all four of the uh, western provinces, but in particular, um, the complaint is filed regarding Alberta. And there is supposed to be labour mobility between uh, provinces like Alberta and British Columbia. And what we've got right now is if you're a care aide, a fully trained and certified care aide in the province of Alberta, the province of British Columbia is not supposed to impose any kind of undue restrictions or any costs or major hurdles for you to be able to work in places like Kamloops, Kelowna and the interior. And right now what we've got is um, a system that, uh, and in fact we've been hearing and, and talking to a lot of care aides about this from Alberta, but if you're trying to come to work, you, you have to, say you're in Calgary, you have to make your way to Vancouver, you have to be tested um, uh, by this uh, bureaucracy that's been set up called the BC Carried Registry. You have to pay $800 for that testing. And if those hurdles weren't enough, um, we've discovered that the actual kind of pass-fail rate for the uh, applicants who are applying is about 1% pass and 99% fail, which means that these fully trained carriers who've been working in, in places like Alberta they're being forced to take um, a whole series of remedial education, which can cost them up to $4,500. So as you can imagine, Shane, this has really, really cut the flow of, of uh, carriers who are able to come into British Columbia and to work at a time when our population's aging and at a time when we have a health human resources emergency in the interior. So we filed a complaint with the newest partnership agreement and are hoping that an independent uh, kind of tribunal or review of this will, will demonstrate that we need to do something very differently. What uh, I'm unfamiliar with sort of this particular uh, deal and sort of what a process mm-hmm. looks like when you file an appeal or a complaint to it. Uh, what Brief me on that. What's the timeline here and what's going on? How does this proceed? Well, yeah, unfortunately, there isn't a lot available publicly for us to, to actually figure out kind of the timeline. We're hoping it's, it's expedited. We've set a date of July 1st as to when uh, there will begin being critical shortages of care staff within the interior health region. So we've We've advised government of that a while ago, and uh, I'm hoping that this will be a political solution. I, I mean, this uh, actual complaint is more of a legal thing that we're going through, which will go through the processes. I'm assuming it's going to take well beyond July 1st for that to be resolved. But it actually can be resolved at the political level tomorrow. Um, so the minister could, at a very minimum, uh, could waive the fees so that uh, carriers don't have to pay the $800 assessment. There could be uh, satellite uh, testing centers put in the interior so that uh, people don't have to go that far. But actually, I think there are other models that we could put in place, which would be to do things like employer-based assessment. So if a carried wants to work at a care home, a local registered nurse uh, uh, who is bound by the, the rules and regulations of their college could sign off that that individual has met the minimum requirements to work as a carried. There's other things that could happen 
well before we get uh, a resolution through the newest partnership agreement review that we filed uh, this week. Now, while uh, the step of filing a complaint is new, uh, the issue that you're underscoring here is not. You've talked about this mm-hmm. in the public on this show elsewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. Has there been any um, feedback, any communication, uh, either with the ministry or the minister himself, saying, okay, we mm-hmm. appreciate this, we're going to do this, we're going to try me half... I mean, has there been anything? We have had uh, a number of meetings uh, over the last number of months or, or so. In fact, uh, just last week, I had the opportunity to sit with the minister and the deputy minister. Uh, had a very, uh, I think, very good uh, meeting over a period of about an hour. Um, and obviously, the issue of health human resources uh, is coming up. The, the minister is of the view that uh, he doesn't want to lower standards, and he's. Uh, I'm in full agreement with that. I don't think we should be lowering standards, but we should be finding a way to facilitate people who um, are fully trained and are fully certified that are coming into the province to be able to get them into the workplace faster. And and that's really what I was encouraging the minister to look at. And I know that, um, uh, you know, we've been in discussions with the Health Employers Association of BC and other organizations that have the ability to make some changes there. And I'm, you know, while you, you, you never know where this is all going to go, I, I think they're hearing us. I think they have heard that there is a critical shortage and I'm, always hopeful that uh, government will do the right thing because as i you know indicated to the various folks that i've met with you know uh, the lowest standard of all is when a senior pushes a call bell and nobody responds that's the lowest standard and we don't want to go there we want to be able to ensure that when a senior needs care that there's a fully trained and certified carried there on staff to be able to uh, attend to their needs and that's my concern as of july 1st when so many staff are going on holidays, we will not have enough staff to do the backfill and to be able to replace those um, those staff over the summer. That's my main priority and concern right now. Well, let's, uh, I guess my last question on this topic is just about that. I mean, if we get no movement, no momentum, nothing in the way of solutions, mm-hmm. and July 1st arrives and maybe yep. it pushes well past that, uh, paint me a picture. I mean, what happens then? You, you used words like, you know, a staffing shortage, a mm-hmm. critical condition, a crisis. Uh, what will the situation on the ground be like? Yeah. So there's one of two scenarios, Shane, that's going to happen. So one is that uh, we will have a staff shortage and that the care provider simply will not be able to to get the staff that they're going to need. And it's going to mean that the workers that are there now are going to work even harder. They're going to be putting in longer hours over time. And we know that when that happens, they typically get injured and they're off the job and it just exacerbates the problem. So there's that's one scenario. The other scenario that we've uh, been talking with our members about is for them to uh, go forward and to actually hire Alberta trained and certified carriers that have passed their criminal record checks that have met those two hurdles to actually employ them and then those employers will deal with the carried registry and the fact that they're not on that registry at a, at a proper time. But we can't, the, the, the care providers have a duty to the seniors, to their families to make sure that, that there are care staff there uh, on site and I know there are employers that are going to be looking at that option effective July 1st, and we're going to have to deal. The, the issue will come to a head at that point once the uh, the employers are hiring uh, staff directly from Alberta. Another topic, uh, Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie releasing another report this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, you know a little more complex than this, but in essence says, uh, listen, home care needs are, are pretty pretty unaffordable for seniors. Uh, what uh, What's your take on this report? 
Yeah, no, it's an interesting report. Uh, definitely the uh, seniors advocate, uh, you know, has there's no shortage of reports coming out from the seniors advocate. Really what we're looking for are recommendations from the seniors advocate, and we're looking for recommendations around actually what um, to do in terms of this issue. The issues that, that have been highlighted in, in the report today are really not new. A lot of that stuff, that information is kind of out in the public domain. It's been nicely bundled up into a report. Um, but I was hoping to see from the seniors advocate um, more emphasis around the fact that there are so many seniors that are right now in Kamloops General and other hospitals, acute care hospitals in the province of BC. In fact, 13% of every single bed night in an acute care hospital in this province right now is taken up by somebody who's assessed to actually go home or, or to be going into a long-term care setting. Those costs can be $1,800 a day, and, and the report today was very thin on even referencing acute care and acute care hospitals and how many seniors are living in that setting. So for, for that, I'm a bit disappointed, but for sure we uh, definitely, if this leads to more support um, for home care, that would be great, but we know the government announced just a month ago that they were going to be expropriating over 4,000 home care workers that are currently working for many of our members. They're going to be bringing them back uh, in and bringing them into the government um, entities, the health authorities, and we know that's going to reduce the amount of workforce. We know it's going to cost up to 25% more. So I didn't see a lot in that report um, where the seniors advocate was taking a critical view of that move and how that will impact uh, home care services in the province. But I'm not surprised given the seniors advocate reports to the minister. So she's ultimately accountable. Her boss is the minister. So it's understandable that that was omitted from the report. On the issue of hospitals you just raised, is that a shortage of long-term care beds overall, Daniel? Absolutely. It's a shortage because people are lying in, in acute care hospital beds waiting to go into long-term care. Many of them, many of them can't go back to a single family residence by the time they've made it into acute care their conditions have deteriorated to the point that they're now waiting for access to long-term care and we know from a report that we just issued i think you interviewed me a few weeks ago on this as well that we need you know thousands of additional beds in the province uh right now let alone what we're going to need in the next 10 years so we know there's an a, acute shortage of long-term care beds we know we have a lot of people um in acute care hospitals um like i said 18 up to 1800 bucks a day is what it costs there and we need movement on that. And I'm, I'm hoping the seniors advocate will will raise uh, her voice and put more pressure on the provincial government to take action on, on both those fronts. Daniel, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for having me on. That was the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, Danielle Fontaine. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to talk Trans Mountain with the BC Business Council. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. As I mentioned off the top, we're bookending the show with Trans Mountain Talk. Pleasure to be joined this morning by the President and CEO of the Business Council of BC, Greg Davignon. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, so uh, a second approval. Uh, I know Ian Anderson from Trans Mountain held a press conference yesterday. He says uh, if all the dominoes fall as they should, he's hoping to get shovels in the ground in this thing in September. Uh, quote, unquote, they're chomping at the bit to get going. Your reaction and, and how fast do you feel construction should begin? 
Well, I think uh, not only Trans Mountain and Ian, but also Indigenous communities and many workers, in fact, up to 15,000 have been chomping at the bit now for eight years to move this project forward. Um, it's key because we've now been through a very cumbersome, laborious process. It's taken almost eight years, and during that period of time, the United States has built 35,000 kilometers of new crude oil pipeline, and it become energy exporters at our expense. And so uh, we need to move forward, but the pipeline needs to get built. It's no point in just approving something. We need to actually get construction, not just completed, but done. A lot of people focus entirely on the pipeline, and, and I get that to a great degree. But um, in your mind, Greg, uh, spillover economic impacts, are they, are they sort of being ignored in this thing, and how, how important are they? Well, they're significant. It's not just the economic impacts, Shane. I think uh, your listeners in Kamloops know, because the pipeline has been through the community since the 1950s, is that um, it's vital for just the functioning of our society. It was built for energy security reasons. Uh, I know down the lower mainland we've been complaining about the high price of gas, and the TMX pipeline provides refined uh, petroleum products that fuel our cars. And without a proper amount of supply with growing populations, those prices are going to continue to rise and become another contributor to uh, the uh, affordability challenges we have in the lower mainland. But the flip side of it is it's about our reputation. Uh, frankly, when I talk to global investors and CEOs, um, Canada is starting to become irrelevant as a place to place capital. And that has an impact, as we've said, through our confidence in Canada work, not just about a pipeline, but frankly about the ability for companies, whether they big, be big or small, to invest with confidence in British Columbia or Canada and see a return on that investment uh, in a timely fashion. And increasingly, we are very caught up in process and lost sight of what the outcome of that process is intended to do. And at the time when the rest of the world is actually trying to become more competitive and attract investment and to grow their economies because they know that future prosperity is based on your ability to invest and to uh, create healthy companies and healthy communities. My first guest, Rick Peterson, was mentioning that on one hand, the uh, the green light for Trans Mountain obviously being welcomed by investors. But on the other hand, there's sort of a, a grim other side of the coin where they're saying uh, to him that this may be the last pipeline we ever build and that economically would be devastating. Are you hearing similar or no? Well, I, I uh, travel a bit in my role, and I've got the privilege of speaking to a lot of people, and I, there's still skepticism as to whether or not we can get this project built. Uh, and that's not on Trans Mountain. Uh, it's just really on our will as Canadians to come together to, to um, build out the infrastructure we need. The irony of this, as you well know, and Kamloops is probably the epicenter of the example, is that British Columbia came into Confederation on the promise of building national infrastructure through the form of the railway. It was the bargain that we had to come into into um, into Canada uh, at a time when we had options. Uh, many people called to become part of the United States, and we've forgotten that as a small open trading economy with 37 million people, we are far better working together than when we work in isolation. And frankly, populist politics has lent us uh, to a, a reflex to say, let's do what's in our best interest as opposed to the country's best interest. We just put out a report as you might recall a few weeks ago called the ties that bind the biggest trading partner with British Columbia is Alberta 
$30 billion. And it's not just money, it's also people that flow back and forth. When Alberta Energy was um, growing dramatically in the 2010, 2011, 2012 region, we had 50,000 British Columbians living in places like Kamloops and Kelowna and Vancouver and Victoria, flying in and getting paid really well to do work in the energy space, and then coming back with their families and their money to spend it here in British Columbia. So we've got to get over ourselves. And I think the biggest challenge is that we need leadership. We need leadership from the Premier, from the Prime Minister, from other Premiers to get together and re-establish cooperative federalism to the benefit of Canadians. We don't, we're tired of the bickering and need to get on with uh, our lives because everyone's got challenges and they want to pursue opportunities for their families. What did you make of the Prime Minister's as part of his announcement saying uh, we're going to use revenue from Trans Mountain, be it in the tax revenue from the pipeline in operation or be it from the dollars uh, of any future sale and we're going to use that to fund a transition to a clean energy economy. What did you think of that? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, in and of itself uh, a great example of why we're doing this. If you look at the International Energy Agency, they're the most respected independent body that looks at energy consumption. We all know that Asia and South Asia is growing dramatically. India is growing by over 7% a year. China continues to grow by over 6% a year. Throughout that um, area as well as Africa. We've got two billion people that are moving out of poverty into the middle class. And they want things that we enjoy and take for granted. But they also, their economies in growing and building out infrastructure need energy to do it. And we often criticize ourselves, but Canadians are excellent at extracting natural resources and energy and exporting it abroad. And this transition to a low-carbon economy of the future is going to happen, but you actually need the revenue to be able to build new infrastructure, build new technology, develop new approaches to clean energy. It just doesn't happen overnight. And so the Prime Minister, I think, is on the right track in terms of how do we reinvest. But frankly, the private sector, in my view, has always been better at reinvesting in technology that works than governments. And last question here, Greg. Uh, one of the other interesting aspects of this is we have a bunch of First Nations groups who are actively looking to buy a, a big part or maybe all of the pipeline. And in fact, the Prime Minister has said they're going to open it up to some kind of First Nations economic investment up and down the pipeline. And perhaps I'm hearing offer First Nations uh, an opportunity to buy over and above whatever that percentage uh, is. Uh, what's your take on, on the First Nation? I mean, obviously opposed to some degree from some First Nations communities in the Lower Mainland, but along the rest of the pipeline largely for and so much so now they're looking to buy in well uh, my family's been in BC for four generations and um, I don't know that I've ever seen a single issue in a hundred some odd years they've been here where we completely agree as British Columbians on we can't even agree whether family day or daylight savings time should happen at certain periods so you know the fact that indigenous communities disagree shouldn't be any surprise because the general population can't agree on things but um, uh, I think it's terrific. Um, at the end of the day, British Columbia leads the country in really interesting partnerships and relationships between business and Indigenous communities. In fact, there's over 500 agreements in BC alone. Trans Mountain Pipeline is a gold standard in terms of the way that Ian has worked with Indigenous communities to build relationships. According to Trans Mountain, they have 33 agreements along the pipeline in British Columbia and 43 in total. And those aren't just a deal. They're meaningful relationships. Ian can tell you the names of the chief and their families in, along every community in the pipeline. 
And I've met with a number of the indigenous companies that want to buy the pipeline. I know some of the chiefs, including uh, Shane from Kamloops, that are involved. I think it's terrific because if we can enable indigenous uh, people and companies to grow and become profitable and prosperous, we're only going to accelerate reconciliation. And we've got cultural understanding that can be born from that, both companies and communities having a better understanding of indigenous communities and, frankly, indigenous communities having a better understanding of how capital markets and business works. So I think it's terrific that indigenous uh, businesses and business leaders are looking for an opportunity to buy a pipeline and a myriad of other businesses that they can operate profitably for their people and also for the economy in British Columbia. We did a study with the... um, uh, uh, Indigenous Business Investment Council found that 70% of all the economic benefit that comes from a really prosperous Indigenous community actually flows to the non-Indigenous community around it. So, in other words, if you've got a really healthy Indigenous community, you're going to benefit from it if you're non-Indigenous uh, and live adjacent to it. Always a pleasure, Greg, and thanks for reminding me I need to trademark Shane from Kamloops. So. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Shane. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, look forward to getting up to Kamloops soon. Sounds good. Greg Davignon from the BC Business Council of BC, and that brings to an end this edition of The Woodford Show. We'll see you again on Radio NL tomorrow morning. The show changes inside politics Friday morning. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswa from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.